I have, uh, um, I was looking for a way to illustrate this morning's sermon, and, uh, and I thought of my cell phone. I have a cell phone. It is one of the later models. It has a bunch of holes on the back of it that are cameras. Uh, it has the ability to play incredible games. I play solitaire. It has the ability to do social networking, apps for well, I don't even know what all the social networking you people do. I email. Sometimes. I text. Um, there are a few pictures on here, uh, even though it's got this state-of-the-art camera. I mean, I think back to when I was in high school, the camera that we had with that, you know, it was a little like, thing like this that I took to camp with the, you know, the camera, the, the light that turned around and you had to carry the film over. There's kids, they had this stuff called film and you had to carry it over to Walgreens to have it published. Now you can get it right away and you can take thousands of pictures and it doesn't matter. I take tens of pictures, not thousands. This in my hands is not at all taken advantage of. I do not take advantage of my computer. I do not take advantage of these. Uh, To me, it's almost like having a Ferrari and I treat it like it's a Ford Pinto. That's about what I have here in my hands. And I know that when my granddaughter gets a hold of it, she can do things. In fact, with the next generation that's coming up, before my granddaughter could say hello to me or even use a word, she could do this with her finger. And she would flip through my phone and could get to YouTube Kids. And there's some great educational stuff on here. This is a great tool. Um, I barely use it. Today we are going to be look at one, looking at one of the grandest views of our Christian faith and the church that we have in Scripture, and it's my conviction that most of us treat the church and our Christian lives like I treat the cell phone. We are not at all taking advantage of the benefits that God has given us in church, with each other, with communion with Him. And at the conclusion of Ephesians 3, this sermon, we're going to hear a statement that people have interpreted different ways, that he does exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. What is it exactly that he's talking about there? Well, in order to see that, we have to look at what his intention was and what the prayer was that preceded that statement. Turn, if you will, to Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21. And today, at this momentous moment as we talk about a building, I want to focus on glory to God in the church. The exceeding abundance that He offers us is in our relationship with Him. Glory to God in the church. And it's found in a, in a format of a prayer. In verse 14, and I'll read uh, verse 14 till verse 21. And you'll see that in the beginning it starts as a prayer and it ends in a benediction that is uh, one of my favorites in all of Scripture. Verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that uh, 
that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. In this passage, we see an astounding promise for the church, just a breathtaking view, kind of like that view that I first got. I've seen lots of pictures of the Grand Canyon, but this is like that view of when I first stepped up to the Grand Canyon and actually saw it. No picture did it credit. The picture that that is being painted here and it's, it serves as a transition in the book of Ephesians from the knowledge of what Christ has done for us to the understanding of what he expects of us now. And in the middle, he gives us this grand view of the church. And I don't know how you came this morning feeling about the church. I don't know what your history is with the church. I know that nationally, we have moved from a time where we used to trust the church nationally That meant that if you had a church in your town and your marriage was struggling, you thought of that church as the place to go to help you with your marriage. If you were sad or discouraged, you thought of the church as the place to stop first. You thought of a pastor as a guy that could be trusted. And I would say in the last 50 years, that has culturally changed. People don't look at the church with with anything like this lens. The question is, do you? How do you view the church? Are your expectations very low when you come to church? Do you try to hide, not get to know people? Because if you get to know people, you might not like them, and that'll ruin church. This view of church is nothing short of breathtaking, and it's God's vision for the church. It starts in a prayer. The first is that we would pray to be filled with God's power. Look in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And maybe you're not prone to bow your knees. That's something I was taught to do as a kid. Get, you know, before I went to bed, I would get on my knees next to my bed. And why do you get on your knees? Daniel modeled it. Three times a day, he would get on his knees. Because it's a physical representation of submission before God. It's a physical representation of humility. It's a physical representation of worship. And when we bow before God, I was taught to fold my hands and close my eyes. And in in essence, C.S. Lewis described it that you're taking your physical body and you're aligning it with what you're trying to do spiritually. Because we are both of those things at the same time. We are physical and we are spiritual beings. So as we approach God in prayer, there are times that it is right for us to bow and to submit ourselves. We understand that this is a position where we're coming underneath God. We're not coming to him saying, hey, you promised exceeding abundantly. What are you going to do for me? This is a position of humility. It's a position of openness to let God do what he wants to do in us. So it starts as a prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I love the fact that this is written 
to the Ephesians, to a, to a city of a church that's filled with people who have worshipped other gods. And he wants them to know that you are worshipping the God who is father of all the families, whether in heaven or on earth. At this time, gods were thought of as local. If you were the god of, you know, Artemis would have been the god for the Ephesians. We worship Artemis, and that's our personal god in this town, in this region. And there would be a temple to Artemis in that region. But you might worship a different god in a different region. And they, they thought of gods as very, like they were regional, they were closer. But we're going to see that in Ephesians, we have been describing a god that is far closer than any god that you imagine. But right here, he wants them to know that this is the father of every family in heaven and on earth. Not just the Jewish family. Not just the Romans, but the barbarians and the Scythians and the slaves and the freemen. All of them were welcome in the church on equal footing before the cross. Every family on earth. And it's the same thing here for the bridge. There are times that churches can feel like, hey, what we're doing is like the closest thing to what God wants, and, and we have special favor over other churches. That's not true. What's true is that we are one family that God has called together to be the church, to represent Him in this generation, in this space. But we recognize as we come to prayer about the church that God is the Father of all the churches, of all of the people on all of this earth. I mean, He is the one who has called his people to gather together. And on this morning, Sunday morning, in Zambia and in India and in Costa Rica, churches are gathering together that believe in Jesus Christ, and they are giving worship to God. And God is big enough to be close to all of us. And he doesn't even stop there. He says, by the way, we are also the family. Uh, he is the, the, the one who is family of those in heaven as well. That means the spiritual forces the principalities and the powers that we can't see in the spiritual realm. He is father of them as well. He is the creator of them as well. The one that we come to is the creator of all. And this creator of all established the church. The followers of Christ to come together to worship Him and to wait for Him to call us home. It's an amazing picture already of the church. In verse 16, it says that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner, in your, in your inner being. This prayer is that God's power would be poured out on you, that His glory would be poured out on you. And this is in the context of the church. That God's power would be poured out. Now, there are some promises. I've said this before, and it, it was kind of a surprise to me. There are some things that we pray for that God has already promised, that we know it's a miracle that He will work and wants to work, but there's something causing Him not to work that. And what we're talking about in this prayer speaks to that miracle. There is a miracle promised to the church of union with Christ and union with each other. The church is supposed to be the hands and feet of Christ. 
It is supposed to be the place where God's love dwells, that God's character dwells, that Christ's character is put on display for all of the world to see. My biggest lament in COVID is not that we became a smaller church. That is not my biggest lament. My biggest lament in COVID is that the church didn't put on display the love and peace of Christ. That was a golden opportunity for us to show Christ and be the church. If you want to know what power he's talking about here, you might think that means power like I'm going to be able to lay hands on someone and they're going to be healed, or, and that could happen, and, but that's not the promise here. And, and, and it might mean that somebody's speaking in tongues or you might be something that's, that's emotional. That's not the power that he's talking about. He's talking about power in your inner being. The power through His Spirit in your inner being. It's it's power that is on display in our personal relationships with God coming together, and together we have a relationship with God. This is a promise that Christ wants to be near to us. This promise is put on display in John 15. It's, it's, it's put on display when it says that he wants us to abide in Christ. He already knows that they're believers. He's testified to that already. When Peter said, you know, baptize me and wash me clean, he says, you've already been clean. You don't need to take a bath. He was already a believer. But then he says, abide in me and let my words abide in you that you might bear much fruit. And then in Romans, I mean, Revelation 3.20 a promise that is used often for people to come to faith. It's actually a promise to the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you choose to let me in, I will come in and eat with you, and there'll be this union. Can you imagine being in church or having a Christian life and Jesus is outside knocking to have communion with you? My conviction is we have not seen the promise of God. I have not seen the full promise of God in my life. The exceeding abundance that he talks about in this passage, in a minute we're going to be talking about a building, and I'll talk about where that fits, but that's not what we're talking about. Exceeding abundantly does not mean we're going to get to get a building. Exceeding abundance is talking about the nearness of Jesus Christ to us and the power of Jesus Christ to transform us. That's our promise, whether we're in a tent or a building. That's the promise to the church. And that promise is available to us just like there are apps available to me. Now, if I die having not used this phone to its full potential, big deal. If I drive it like a Pinto, we'll all get over it. But if I live this life far beneath what God intended ecclesiastically as a church. What a shame. When God had said, this is here for you. So he prays for this Ephesian church, these Ephesian believers, that they would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, that the Holy Spirit would dwell in us and pour his power out on us. And this morning, that's my prayer for our church. That God's power would fill us. 
What is it that hinders us from receiving that promise? Well, let's hold that for a minute. The next is the prayer that we would be filled with God's love. In verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. So Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, you know, we're doing a one-off here in Ephesians, and one day I get to preach Ephesians. I'm so excited. Haven't done it yet. But if we would have been doing this all along, you would have seen in Ephesians 1 that God has offered us these riches in the heavenly realm and given us an identity in the first 10 or 11 verses of chapter 1 of Ephesians. It is, again, this amazing view of our identity in Christ, what he's given us by faith. And in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 specifically, he says that you can't work for this. It's by grace and by grace alone that you receive this relationship with Jesus Christ. You're saved by grace. So he's talking to people that are already saved by grace and that already have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, and yet he prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Who is he speaking to here? He's speaking to a church. He's speaking to Christians, people who have already been saved. And he's praying that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. There's this uh, hard-to-understand, maybe, jump from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 to Ephesians 10. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says it's not by works that you're saved. You're not going to be saved by works. And Ephesians 10 for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you're saved by faith, and yet the expectation is, is that our lives would be radically changed. And there are some that are saved by faith. Well, let's just put us all in this camp. All of us somehow get messed up and we don't fully receive all that God wants for us, that we, would, we were created to bear fruit as a church. And, and in the context of bearing this fruit, we are to do it in the context of love, rooted and grounded in love. So what's the problem? The first thing I want you to notice here it's an issue of faith. The same thing that saved us is the same thing that sanctifies us. It's faith. God is the one who works. It's not that, okay, I got this by grace and now I have to work really hard to please God. That doesn't work. The reality is it's in our nearness to Christ that we emulate Christ. It's in the nearness of Christ that his power works its way through us. It's when we bow on our knees and submit to him that we are vessels that can be used by him. The problem with living sacrifices, they keep crawling off the altar. But when we submit to Christ and let him work through us, then we bear good fruit. And it's by faith that we do that. So it's not like I'm going to send you home and say, you all need to try harder to be good Christians. 
No, what I'm going to tell you is that the very thing that saved you, which was faith in Jesus Christ, is the very thing that sanctifies us as a church, that it's by faith in Jesus Christ and by focus on Jesus Christ that miracles happen. And what kind of miracles? Well, it's right here, rooted and grounded in love. Rooted and grounded in love. We pray that we would be filled with God's love. How much are we filled with God's love? The Christian life is not built on guilt. The Christian life is built on a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it, he loves us. No longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. That's what he said to his friends. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If you knew how much he loved you. Now there are, I have great parents. I am one of the most blessed kids growing up in my home with my parents. My parents loved me. My parents loved me different. My dad loved me by a you know, swat on the butt and get up and work hard. My mom nurtured me, pulled me on her lap and kissed my wounds. But between the two of them, I was one loved kid. And most of my life has been in the context of that foundation. Well, some of you might think, well, I didn't get that. I didn't have that. What about me? The foundation of my life truly is the love of Jesus Christ. In this, we have a loving Father. That's who we're asking. And it's for some of us, for all of us, a replacement because my parents, as much as they loved me, were not perfect. And as much as I love my kids and grandkids, I am far from perfect. I cannot be what they need for the rest of their lives. What they desperately need is a relationship with God and to have their lives rooted and grounded in love. There are two metaphors given there. One is of a tree, another is of a building. The tree, imagine a tree in a storm. Imagine a tree being hit by a car. What makes a tree stand when it's hit by a truck or a car? It's the root system. He's saying, be rooted in my love. You want a healthy church? Be rooted in my love. You want a building that's going to stand, that's going to hold up? It needs a good foundation. What is the foundation? The foundation is the love of Jesus Christ. This is the church. This is our identity. We are the loved ones. I love how John referred to himself in the book of John. The disciple that Jesus loved. You know what I hear there? I hear that he saw love in such a way that he felt like he was almost singled out amongst all the disciples. Jesus loves me. He wasn't saying he didn't love the rest of the people, but it was so personal and it was so individual that when it came time to write the book of John, John referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. How do you refer to yourself? Are you rooted and grounded in his love? If you want exceeding abundance in God, then you need to be rooted and grounded in his love. The problem isn't that God doesn't love you. The problem is our relationship to God. Have we, by faith, come close, abided in him, welcomed him in, and done relationship with him? Verse 18, they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. 
There's a lot here in verse 18. As the prayer continues, that they would have strength to comprehend with all the saints. It's been eight years since we've started the church here at the bridge, and I have learned so much about God, about church, about friendships, about doing church together. And somewhere about halfway through, I realized this is the playing field where we live out our Christian lives. This is where we learn to be Christian. If it can't work in the context of community, what hope have we? That's why I think specifically COVID was so hard. COVID was so hard because community was taken away. You cannot learn to love each other and do that one another thing that's required to work out our faith online. I mean, maybe the kids can do chat rooms, and that's a little closer, and video rooms, but it's not the same thing. Ask any teacher, can you teach the same way online as you can in person? I see one teacher shaking her head saying, no way. Why? Because we need teachers to personally inspire us. We're supposed to figure out a way to comprehend this power, this love that we're rooted and grounded in with all the saints. This is part of the vision for church. It's the gather piece. We look at glorify, gather, grow, and go. Gather, we grow together while we're gathering. Gather is really important. Coming together and knowing each other and and caring for each other matters. Church Anonymous, you're driving a Pinto. You're missing out. You have to risk the difficulty of relationship. Oh, but Todd, I've been burned. I've been judged. I've been... I've had bad experiences. We all have. The reality is, is I've been part of the cause of some of those bad experiences. I've had to repent. So what do we do when the church isn't acting like the church, or I specifically am not acting like a Christian and being redemptive? Well, you just repent and get close to Jesus. He's the one who does this. All that is is a sign saying, you are not close enough to Christ. If what comes out of you is anger and hatred and bitterness and division. The reality is, is we've just wandered away from Christ because that's not Christ. If we want exceeding abundance, we are going to have to return to our knees again and again and acknowledge that's not it. What came out of me today is not it. I need more of Jesus. But with eyes focused on Jesus, exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. In the church. God designed it for us to comprehend this with the church, with the saints. And what is it? What is the breadth and length and height and depth? It's interesting, for the, really the only time in Scripture he uses four dimensions. Now outside of Scripture, we do see some, some usages of four dimensions. He talks about not just three-dimensional, but four dimensions. And what is the context of that in the first century? The context of that in the first century was they believed, pagans believed, that that was the spiritual realm. There's 
breadth, there's length, there's height, and then there's depth. And in that fourth dimension, he describes something that's going on spiritually. And he's saying, I want you to know on every level, in your spirit, in your being, in your experiences, in church, and verse 19 says what he wants us to know, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. He wants us to experience it. I did junior high ministry for 27 years. And in those 27 years, I saw God build church with kids, and it was so cool. And I prepared and planned and taught. And somebody might say, I, mean, I remember when I started doing junior high ministry, the guy who was doing it before me, this would have been 1988, the guy that was doing it before me hated junior high ministry. He, they just were unruly and unkind. and didn't. I mean, I went in there, and they were. I watched them. He tried to talk, and they were like, turned their back to him while he was talking. And, and I watched God work miracles. And some that guy might come to me today and say, hey, thanks for serving in junior high ministry. Do you know who, from my perspective, got more than anybody else? Me. Because if you show up expecting God to use you to give to other people, if you come and your cup is empty and you're saying, I don't have love to give and I don't want to forgive and I want to stay angry, and, and you decide to submit and let go, God is the one who fills us and we become the recipients of his love and our hearts are rooted and grounded in his love. He fills us. He will always give us what we need before he asks us to give away. Sometimes while we're giving away because it's by faith that we do church. Well, who will be there for me if I forgive? And who will be there for me if I love first? Well, Jesus will. That's the miracle of the church. That's the miracle of the Christian life. Do you want that? Do you want what we were recreated for? I do. We got to a place in the church that says, this is how we said it. It's a real simple phrase. I want the miracle. I don't want to do the best that we can do. I don't want to be a nice church. I want the miracle. I want what God offered us. And after eight years, how are we doing? Oh, man, we have so much to repent for still. But I am so thankful for all of the stories that God has worked out in and among us. And I count it as one of the greatest privileges of my life to be your pastor and to be called to this work. Exceeding abundance. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is a truth you may not know. When you become a Christian, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit never leaves you. If you have the Holy Spirit, you are saved. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you were never saved. That's the Scriptures. That's the truth of the Word of God. But the reality is, is that after that, there's a promise of abiding. There's a promise of filling. There's a promise between living a life in the power of the Spirit and a life that is still in the power of the flesh. And that's still available to us. And when we're living that life in the flesh, it is simply living a life that says, I think I've got this, God. And then we produce the best human life we can, 
which is a life filled with relationships of trades. I will love you if you love me. I will care for you if you care for me, and I'll forgive you if you forgive me. A Christian life. I'll forgive you if you don't forgive me. I love you if you hate me. It's on the account of Christ loving us first. This is the miracle. Do we want it? Do we want to know what could be? First, we pray that God would fill us with power. Second, we pray that God's love, we'd be filled with God's love. Finally, we pray that we would bring glory to God in our church. Ultimately, our job as a church is to declare to the generations that are following, we have kids that are watching us. And we want them to know that they can place their trust in Jesus Christ. In America, we are now a post-Christian nation, which means most of our kids that are going to school today don't know the stories of Jesus Christ. They don't know the history of faith and faithfulness in our nation. And our job is to be a beacon to our neighbors about what God is doing, that we, God would be glorified in our church. Well, God is not glorified in the kind of church that separates itself from the world around it and doesn't care about its neighbors. God is not glorified when we only hang with our friends and are nice to our friends. God is not glorified when we ask what we get out of it and don't ask, God, what have you sent me to give? But when we, the church, come together under Christ, filled with Christ, and he works his miracle, not one of us gets the glory. Are you okay with that? I don't get the glory. Jesus Christ gets the glory in the church. And people put their focus on Christ and not on people. Because none of us as people have what people need. Except for the fact that we have Christ in us. As we are rooted and grounded in, in love, it's our job to glorify Christ and to say quickly, early and often, that it is Jesus Christ is the one who has been doing exceeding abundantly among us. And to God be the glory. And it, by the way, he loves you too. And you can have exceeding abundance just as easily as I can. What about my starting point? What if I'm so far from God? Yeah, you might be far from God, but God is so close to you. This is what he came for. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Who hasn't, as a Christian, quoted those words? Who hasn't wondered that God would say, it sounds like God's gushing. I can do a lot for you guys. No, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Oh, I can think pretty big. I can ask pretty big. What does asking big look like? As we were starting the church eight years ago, that actually was the question that I had. How indeed do we pray for our church? Are we praying for lots of people? I don't think that's the abundance he's talking about. Praying for lots of money? I don't think that's the abundance he's talking about. Transformed lives and people putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Families saved. Children going from hopeless to hopeful. 
children giving their lives to Christ at a young age and saving from a multitude of sins. What is of greater value than that? The new house and the new car, is that our abundance? That can't be our abundance. It can't be what he's talking about. I mean, these, Paul's about to get killed here. He's spending time in prison, and he's talking about exceeding abundance as he's writing about testifying to what God's talking about. We're not talking about comfort. We're talking about eternal transformation and a union with a God who loves you more than any being has ever loved you. The most loved you've ever been, the place you are truly safe. I like to talk about safety now. Where are you safe? Only in Christ are you safe. I spent yesterday for a few moments with a person who is dear sister in Christ who has been struggling with cancer for a long time. And she asked me to read Philippians 4. about casting your anxiety on Christ. And everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of Christ. I saw, I was so encouraged by her heart for Christ and confidence in her suffering. In the beginning, I started praying for our church that God would give us a his love for each other, and his love for the community around us. I knew that would require us not pretending we would actually have to be in relationship with Christ. But I wanted the miracle. And I actually think this is the miracle, and I hope you hear this, families that are struggling. This is the promise for Christian families this is the promise for Christian churches. This is the promise for broken relationships. The truth is that we can be Christ where he plants us. And that's the exceeding abundance, that we actually go into places where love is not returned and we give Christ's love. And we see people the way Christ sees them and we value them in a world where our youth are so undervalued right now. We just want them to know that Jesus loves them, right? In a world where the elderly are so undervalued, it's time for the church to rise up and say, the elderly matter. There's no throwaway life. Exceeding abundance is to see people the way Christ sees them and to be filled with that same love so that we can pour it out on them. That's the church. It's not about walls, it's about doors. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Jesus is at work within us. The Holy Spirit is at work within us. Jesus is still open-handed dealing with his children and he lets us fail. We can choose to come to him. We can choose to repent. We can choose to be the church because he's given us the power through the Holy Spirit. It's the miracle that's promised to us in our families, in our neighborhoods, and in our building, in our churches. And I desperately want the miracle. So what does that require of me? Well, as your pastor, that requires that I'm first to repent. 
when there's brokenness, when there's division, when there's anger and frustration, and in eight years we've seen some of it, I'm first on my knees. How desperately we need Christ. Notice that it's throughout all generations forever and ever. That means that this generation he was promising this to. This little church of ours amidst all of the other churches in our country and in our world, God looks at our church and he has made this promise to us as well. Throughout all generations forever and ever, God's heart is towards the church, the gathering of his people. My whole life I have heard some Christians say at different times, I'm done with the church, I can do my Christian life on my own. I don't believe that's true. I mean, you can be a Christian and you can live outside of the people of God and you can function outside of the people of God, but the truth is if we're going to glorify God, we need to gather together And when we gather together, and gather together looks like working out 1 Corinthians 13 or Colossians 3, 12, or it's that being patient with each other, being kind with each other, learning where we need more of Christ together as we gather together and God builds this unity and this love that is infectious. And then we grow. And if you know Ephesians, from here on out, he's going to talk about how you do family and how you do church and what are the ethics of being a Christian. But before you learn the ethics, you have to know that it's faith in Christ that gives you a relationship and it's God at work in you that gives you sanctification. It is not go try really hard. So as we gather together glorifying God, we grow together and glorify God. But as you'll see in the video and I testify, we have to go. The church is not about walls and about separation. The church is about proclaiming the work of Christ. And to the same degree that we are thankful that someone proclaimed it to us, we need to proclaim it to others. How far? Wherever he sends us, wherever he plants us. We need to receive this abundance from God and to pour that out on the world around us. And my conviction is, to the degree that we pour it out, God will cause our cups to overflow. That we will be the greatest recipients and that sometimes he withholds the overflowing because we think it's just for us. And it's not. We have to go. Or something, if we just stop it, grow, something gets sour. We can't sustain it anymore. And what's happening? We're no longer on assignment with Christ. And all of it is about glorifying. All of it is about glorifying Christ. I've said to you often um, that I have seen church broken. I have, have many pastor friends. I've seen people burnt out. I have seen people done with the church. I have many friends in the church. I've seen great stories and I've seen stories where it's been really, really hard. And at 58 years old, having lived through COVID, having seen our church get bigger and bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger, our our budget getting bigger each year, 
And then COVID hits and see us get cut in half and our budget getting cut. And I'm, I lived through it. Maybe you'd think Todd is not as excited about the church. I am more optimistic than I have ever been in my whole life. And it's not because we're a bunch of great people and it's not because we have some great plan at the bridge. I am more optimistic about what God is doing in the church because God is the one who builds the church. And if we will just focus on Christ and commune with Christ as a church and as individuals, He will radically change us from within. Exceeding abundantly beyond all that you ask or think. You might just find out you have the character of Christ. And that you're the one that has the privilege to tell somebody else about it. So today we're going to be looking at next steps for a building plan. And I chose this passage to preach. Why? Well, first of all, I want you to know that the promise to the Bridge Church is not that we're going to get a building. That's not the promise. That's not even my exceeding abundant that I'm praying for. That's what God is doing. And I, and I think about it in terms of family. I, had, I have four children, uh, but when they were young, we got a house. And that house, for me, was a place where my children could grow up and, and we could build family and we could build unity and we could do it. Was the building our family? No. Oh, when my, fam- my kids grew up, I sold the building. The building wasn't the point. The building was the place where my children were nurtured. That building became the place, we had an apartment in the basement, that missionary stayed. It became a place where we could serve. When my kids got older, it became the place where the youth group came over and kids from school came over. It became their ministry. I tried to cast a vision. This building is not just for us. We had a pool in the back, and I remember some kid that we invited over took a pole and and went up against my edge of my liner and tore the liner all the way around and it drained overnight, my pool. And me and the kids had a conversation. Whose pool is this? It's God's pool. So what are we going to do? We're going to fix the pool. $10,000 later, we're going to fix the pool and we're going to invite that same kid back. Why? Because it's not about the building. It's about the people. It's about the church. Now, when we started to pray about land, I I looked at churches and and, and thought, okay, we can't buy that bowling alley with five acres. That's short-sighted. It'd be fine for our generation. We could get into a building way faster. But that's not looking forward for the next generation. I want those kids to have a church. We realized we're, I mean, I'm an old church planner, right? I started, I'm 50 years old when I started planting churches. And I realized pretty quickly, I'm not planting a church for me. I'm planting a church for the next generation. And my job is to hand over a church. So I thought, all we're going to do is buy land. But let's make sure we buy enough land that we don't hinder future generations. So we looked at property, and you'll hear the stories. I'm not going to get ahead of us, but you'll hear some of these stories. But I want you to know the context of the stories that you're about to hear. That God moved us miraculously, way faster, gave us 46 acres in Barrington Hills 
for already a reduced rate and then gave us another 100000 off of that. We paid the land off in COVID. And I keep thinking, God, you probably want us to do this in 10 years or 15 years. And yet, and then in COVID, we see our, our numbers go down to 140 or 130 and our, our budget is dropping this year and we're going to probably cut our budget. Actually, it kind of excites me now. Right before we launched the church, God wrote a story that we would be $12,000 short. We were set to launch the first time on September 7, 2014, and we had portable church, and we had to pay the whole bill, and we were $10,000 or $11,000 short. And we prayed. And I'm convinced, it's funny, that's one of my favorite moments from the launch story. It's when God said, this is what I did. You didn't do it. I did it. And our conviction is that God will give us all we need, all the people and all the money, to do what he's called us to do. I believe that we are called to be a church. I believe that God gave us land, miraculously. I believe we have the right architect, has a vision. I love this guy. We have a great videographer that's helped us say what we mean to say. And I can't wait for you to hear it. And what's God about to do? Well, let me be clear. I'm not praying for the miracle of a building. I'm praying for the miracle of who we are, wherever he plants us. Knowing full well that he gave us land and great people to help us. Jerry, thank you. Dave, thank you. I'm going to miss people, so I should just stop. God's writing a story, and it's wonderful. But at every turn, uh, it is about the family of God being the family of God wherever he plants us. And it might be cool that our kids have a place to do that ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <laughs> I, uh, I confess that oftentimes I think of myself as unlovable and unlikely. But you are a God of exceeding abundance, a God of love, a God has sent his son to die for us and to stand at a door knocking to be in relationship with us. God, not of browbeating, but of nurturing love. Your mercies are new every morning. I confess that we have failed, I have failed throughout these eight years many times. And oftentimes we live far beneath our calling. This morning I pray that you would work exceeding abundance over us as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.